If I were to ask you to share with me what you would see as some of the greatest demonstrations of God's power, I would suspect that there would be a variety of different answers. Some might say, well, the greatest demonstration of God's power came by a graveside of a man by the name of Lazarus when he had been dead for a long enough period of time that his body had already begun to uh, deteriorate and to decompose. And Jesus spoke and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of the tomb. And some of you would capitalize on the fact that he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he had just said, come forth, everybody would have come out of the tomb. And that would have been a great demonstration of his power. Some of you might look back and say, well, no, I I think a greater demonstration of God's power came when Israel was in captivity to the uh, Egyptians and God brought down these ten plagues upon the Egyptians to finally bring the Pharaoh to the place where he was willing to say, you can leave. And then, of course, he recanted of that, sent his army after Israel, and that army was defeated as God divided the the Red Sea. The Israelites walked through on dry ground, and the Egyptian army was swallowed up by that uh, water that, that crashed in upon them. And that would be a a great demonstration of the Lord's power. I think some of you would say this, the greatest demonstration of God's power, and this, this just goes beyond everything else imaginable, is the creation act. When the Lord spoke and the universe was brought into existence out of nothing, and the Lord created a universe that can't even be comprehended by the human mind. We, we have trouble comprehending the elements related to our solar system. And our solar system is just a little pinprick on a map that extends beyond our vision because the universe itself, if, if the scientists are telling us accurately what they reflect through what they're able to observe, we can only see a small percentage, even with the strongest telescopes, of what the universe is made up of. Terrible English, but great recognition of God's power. You look out into the sky, and we only see a fragment of what the universe is. And then what we see to be a star is actually a galaxy that contains billions of stars. And then the Lord has named every one of them. And he knows each one by name, as he knows each one of us by name. And you would say that that was the greatest demonstration of God's power. And I would submit to you that it's not. But the greatest demonstration of God's power came at the cross of Calvary. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians And as we look at this book, we're going to begin to see the elements of God's power as those are demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. Beginning at verse 18, we read this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in wisdom, in the wisdom of God, let me start that again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The power of the cross. In the cross alone is the power to save. I really believe that as we look at the things that to us seem to be so uh, essential uh, in their, their nature to have something of great power create them, I don't believe it was a real stretch for God to call the universe into being. I don't think that was, that was all that big a deal. How much energy was drained in his doing that? <laughs> I'm not sure there was any. I think he spoke and there it was. But there is a spiritual battle that is going on that has brought about not only the infusion of sin into every person's life, but there is a spiritual battle that can be won through the sacrifice of Christ where that penalty of that sin can be overcome so that a righteous God is powerful enough to provide that which is necessary for sinful fallen man to become righteousness equal with his own, and therein is the great power of God. It is the power of the cross that saves. And when we talk about the cross, as Paul did here in 1 Corinthians, we are talking about everything that is involved in the sacrifice of Christ. We are talking about that life that was lived sinlessly up to the point of the crucifixion. We are talking about that life that was given as perfection, carrying upon its shoulders the very sins of the world. We are looking at one who not only died for our sins, but then through his resurrection made sure that we could be justified, that we could be redeemed, that God's righteous demands would be satisfied, and that we would be reconciled to a holy God. All of that is engulfed in the concept of the cross. And so when Paul begins to speak here and he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Natural man does not grasp that. Look down at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, now there's a comma, there is a break in the thought, there is an interjection that is taking place here that takes us to another realm, and now it's the realm of human thinking. And here's what humans have to do and, and to say. The world, through wisdom, did not know God. 
the importance of that statement is profound because it is based upon that little phraseology that mankind, apart from the revelation that God has given, tries to determine his own way in which he will be made acceptable to a holy God. It's done through religion. It's done through acts of goodness. It is a philosophy that develops on the basis of this belief. I have within me the capability to provide God with a satisfaction that will come through my efforts to please Him so that the day will come about that when I die and I have to stand before God in judgment, He will look at me and He'll say, Hey, you were a pretty good fella. You were a very good lady. Come on in. And God's existence is for my benefit right now. When I ask God for something, I expect Him to give it to me. And if He doesn't give it to me, I don't need need to deal with Him anymore. Who needs Him? See, in man's way of thinking, we're the center of the universe. We're what it's all about. When the reality is that God is the center. And He's what it's all about. And we haven't been put here to be masters of the Creator. We are put here to bring glory to the Creator and to fulfill His purpose and to accomplish His will. And so what Paul says is this, man, in the extent of his own wisdom, could not come up with a solution that would provide satisfaction for a holy God to the point to which he could forgive and grant eternal life. So then he goes on, and he tells us more about this as you go down through the remainder of this. You get down to verse 22, and you begin to find this, that man couldn't come up with a theology that would be sufficient to satisfy a holy God. And I I use that terminology because of what we find there in verse 22. For Jews request a sign. We have to take a look at that in the context of Paul's thinking. When he refers to the Jews, he refers to people who have developed their own religious system. Now, you say, wait a minute. Weren't God's chosen people the Jews? Yes, they were. And they will be again. God looked upon those people and by a sovereign, divine act of his own will, set them apart to be a people for himself. And his desire was that through Israel, the reality of who the true and the living God really is would be shown to the world. The world was steeped in paganism. Many had embraced a variety of different gods, many of whom were very cruel many of whom required the human sacrifices that would be offered to placate their anger. And there was a a world of confusion concerning the possibility of who God might be. And so God planted this people, the Jews, the, the, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, to carry the message of one God to the world. So they they would know the Creator and they would be able to understand who He was. And there were times in which they carried out that work very effectively. They did communicate the truth of who God was. 
But there were also many occasions in which they did not carry that out. In fact, on a number of occasions, they were drawn into the same pagan practices and polytheistic worship processes that the people around them had been drawn into. And so God looks at them as a people and he sees what they now do with the desire that he had to make them a testimony for himself. He had given them the law to be a schoolmaster, to teach people what the absolute requirements of a holy God are. And it began, and, and we would be able to summarize it very quickly in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And it goes right through the list. And there are people that would say, oh yeah, I've kept the Ten Commandments, when in reality nobody has. Nobody has loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. So right there we're lost. But then God added a system of ceremonial laws and of practical applications of those laws that were to govern the conduct of the Israelites, not to grant them eternal life, but to bring them to the place where they recognized that they could not achieve eternal life on their own, they could not be forgiven on their own, and they would turn to the Lord in faith and accept that which he could extend by his grace based upon the coming sacrifice of the person of Jesus Christ. But instead, they developed a complex system of laws and of behavior that caused people to rebel against the very righteousness of God. They did that in a document that's called the Talmud. Now, some of you may have heard of that. But what the Talmud is, it is the compilation of Jewish law as it was verbally communicated, their their perspective is that there was a verbal tradition that was recorded then by Moses and by the other writers of the Old Testament scriptures that they then took and they said, when the Lord says we are to observe the Sabbath. Now here's what that means. And then they began to write out all the different applications of what it means to observe the Sabbath. And it got to a point where things became so ridiculous And I think I've shared this with some of you before. You were allowed to spit on a rock on the Sabbath. But you were not allowed to spit on the dirt. Because if you spat on the dirt, is that the right way to say that? If you... I can think of other ways to say it. But if you spit on the dirt, you have plowed on the Sabbath. If you carried a chair by dragging it across the road, you have broken the Sabbath because you have plowed through the dirt. I mean, that, that's just one little piece of the, the ridiculousness with which these laws were interpreted. And here is this theology, this doctrine of God that is being developed in a religious system that was not true. And so the Lord goes on and he says this, in that realm... The Jewish mind wanted somebody to come and give them a sign because they had all the laws written down. They had everything ready to go. And so he says in verse 22, for the Jews request a sign. Well, Christ addressed that with them. In fact, let me read to you what he said in Matthew chapter 12. He said this. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know what he was referring to? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. You look at the cross if you want to see a sign. That's what he's telling the Jews. Other than that, there will be no sign given to you. And when Christ responded that way, that became a stumbling block to the Jewish mind. That's why he says there at the end of verse 22, for uh, the, the Jews, or pardon me, into verse 23, the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and then to the Greeks foolishness. And we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Well, here is Christ who is offered to them as their king, as their Messiah. And what they wanted him to do was to shake off the rule of the Romans to provide them with an autonomous government that would be of the Jews, by the Jews, for the Jews, for their own well-being as a nation. And he offered himself as a servant. And so they demanded that he die. And when he went to the cross... They looked at the cross and they said, this is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. He's not giving us what we want. Consequently, he became a stumbling block to them. Listen to what the recorders of Scripture tell us in Romans. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Peter, from a Jewish mindset, says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so the world doesn't know the Savior. The Jews, they found him to be a stumbling block. And they tried to develop a theology that excluded him. And they failed. Then he turns to the Greek or the Gentile, people who are non-Jewish. And again, we go back to verse 21, uh, and it says this, uh, For the wisdom of God, uh, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. All right? The cross is not a humanly devised philosophy. To the Jewish mind, they wanted a theology that was humanly devised. Now, the Gentile wants a philosophy. They're, they're the thinkers. They're the, the uh, questioners. They're the people who, who lay down their ideas and they exchange their ideas in a way that they hope they will be able to find the heart of what truth really involves. And so the Greek mind, the Gentile mind says, you know what, I, I would like to develop a philosophy that would fit with my understanding of who God should be and, and who, he, who he is. And they are searching, and what do they find? 
they find that the message of the cross is foolishness to them as well. The Jewish people wanted a sign. The Gentiles want wisdom. They want a philosophy. They, they want something that will titillate their thinking processes. And they get instead a cross. What did that do to the mind of the people who lived in this day? For us to understand that, we have to go back historically to understand the way that Gentiles looked at the cross. They believed that the cross was absolutely the worst, lowest possible experience that anybody could possibly have. It was for the lowest realm of society. It was for those who were rebellious, lawbreakers, but it was reserved to a large extent to those who were at the very bottom of the echelon of society, where they wanted something way up here. And now here is one who claims to be the Savior who goes to the cross. To help us understand that, you you recognize the name Cicero. He wrote about the cross. Listen to what he said about it. He said this, The cross speaks of what is so shameful, so horrible, It should never be mentioned in polite society. Therefore, verse 23, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks foolishness. Now you have all of man's wisdom, all of his own theology, all of his own philosophy set in opposition to the reality of what God himself provided at the cross of Calvary. And man's wisdom failed. Look at verse 21 again. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. When the Lord makes that statement about man's empty philosophies, his empty theologies, he takes us back to what he initially declared in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We need to understand what that means. It is an understanding that people who are already in the state of perishing look at the cross and say, that's foolish. They look at the cross And they see that as a stumbling stone. And the Lord says, it's not that you're going to perish. It's that you're already in the realm of perishing. It is a process that you're going through. In other words, at this very moment, a person who denies the reality of what Christ accomplished at the cross of Calvary and will not accept that by faith is living in the realm of being lost right now. Everything about the cross is foolish. Why why would Jesus go to the cross and die? You know what? I can take care of myself. I'm sure if I do enough good stuff, then then God will accept me because I know I've done some bad things. Ah, big deal. It's no big deal. And and here, here, this, this is the excuse. None of us is perfect. Did you ever hear that? What kind of a statement is that? I already know you're not perfect. You know I'm not perfect. 
That doesn't excuse you and it doesn't excuse me. That's nonsense. We need to find something that will deal with our imperfection. And the world looks at it and says, ah, the cross. That's what you Bible-believing Christians say is the place where you will find forgiveness and life. (laughs) That's foolish. You're in a state of lostness. The foolishness of the cross in your thinking will result in your eternal separation from God and His life, which you do not have even now. But there is good part of this message as well. As you go on in this passage, and you look there in verse 18, you'll notice that there's another side to this story. The message of the cross is the power of God to those of us who are in the state of being saved. He goes on to say, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is such a cool statement. Listen to this. When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you leave the realm of the state of law, of, of, of foolishness and of loss into a realm in which now the very life of God Himself comes into you and some things happen that are absolutely incredible. Some of those things take place in the realm of God's presence where He as the judge declares us justified. Where He says that... I will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. I will place you into my son so that when I look at him and when I look at you, I see his righteousness. And we don't feel that, but that is a transaction that takes place when we trust Christ as our Savior. But then there are some things that we do realize. Hey, you know what? Those things that used to really appeal to me, man, that stuff's wrong. I I, I got involved in that. That language I used to use. Man alive, that is really dishonoring to my God. All of a sudden, everything starts looking differently. Why? Because at this moment, when I know Christ is my Savior, I am in a state of life. I have eternal life right now. It isn't something I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the day when the salvation that Christ has provided will be fulfilled in total. But right now, I've got eternal life. It's I'm in that state at this very moment. And it's because of the power of the cross. You have eternal life. And your desires are different. And your behavior is different. Your, your concerns are different. And can you trip up and fall? Sure. You still have that old nature in there that Satan tries to use to work up things of rebellion. But when it happens, something very unusual occurs. I sense the grief that I've caused the Holy Spirit. And I feel bad. Why do I feel bad now about getting drunk on the weekends when before I did that every weekend? I'm not giving you a personal testimony. (laughs) Although, believe me, I've never been drunk, but I've done other things that just are wrong, so this is not a... This is no expression of self-righteousness. You all know that. But now, those sins that I've committed, 
Something's wrong. What is it? Oh, the Spirit of God dwells within me. And I have grieved Him. Be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I pushed Him out of the way, and I satisfied my own desires, and now I feel bad. How do I deal with this? Lord, I agree with you. What I did was sin. What I did was wrong. Thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven. See, that's what he promises. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is speaking to a child of God. That is speaking to those of us who get our feet dirty in this world, though we have already been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but the one is a, a, a legal act and the other is a familial act. The judge pronounces us innocent, all our sins forgiven, but now that judge has become my father and my father expects me to live a certain way and he wants me to please him. And when I don't please him, he doesn't throw me away. But he does want me to come back into fellowship with him. And I do that by confessing my sins. And so we already have that blessing of eternal life. And it's all found in the cross. At the cross, it was the God-man who came to redeem us. It was the only one who had the power and the capability to carry all of the sins that have ever been committed, to deal with the very nature of our being as God, to infinitely care for what is an interminable number of sins, as God to pay the price for that sin, but as man to identify as the only way that it could happen with man. So the God-man makes the appearance lives that sinless life, goes to the cross, pays the infinite price, and stands in our place as a man. It was the God-man who died for us. And so at the cross, this is where this process of redemption begins. And the penalty that he had to pay was death. It was an agonizing death that included physical agony. The, the price that he paid in suffering because sin causes death. And the death that he died was brought about by the sacrifice of his body that was tortured and hung on the cross. And that agony was not limited to the physical realm, but it was also an emotional agony. Because the Lord... For the joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. Oh, now this is making sense. To the world, the worst thing you could do would be to die on the cross. To the Jewish mind, the king would never go to the cross. To the Gentile mind, nobody of any repute would ever be involved in a death on the cross. And 
the shame that went with that. But a shame that we often forget that was manifest because of the way he was hung on the cross. He was hung naked on the cross. A shameful thing. Artists, with some respect, try to paint a loincloth upon the Savior. But the truth is, he was absolutely naked. And the men and the women would walk by. And the way the psalmist described it, the bulls of Bashan have gathered around. They've stuck out their lower lip at me. Look at him. He said he was the Savior. Oh, if you can't save yourself, who else can you save? So it was emotional. And then it was spiritual. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turning His back on the Son because His Son is carrying my sin. Your sin. The Father looks at the Son. I'm too holy to look on sin. And then the price was paid. And it was finished. And the penalty that you and I deserve was cared for in the foolishness of the cross. Some of you may have heard years ago in um, the people who would settle in the, the western part of our country they would find on occasion that they would be involved in a prairie fire. And those prairie fires were very, very dangerous. In fact, prairie fires still occur today. And they would sweep through an area and destroy everything in the path of the flames. Animals would die and all of the uh, vegetation would be consumed. And people would be looking on the horizon with the wind in their face And they would see the fire coming at a pace they could not outrun. So do you know what they would do? They would set a fire behind them. And that fire, driven by the same wind that was bringing the flames to them, would now burn and would proceed over the horizon And when the flames that were approaching these people would approach them, they would walk back into the realm where the fire had already burned. And it couldn't burn them. When you move into the realm of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the fire has already burned. He paid the penalty so we don't have to.
Is that not the best news you've ever heard? The fire can't burn where it's already burned. And it already burned at the cross. God's power and wisdom were focused at the cross because there Jesus Christ conquered sin. Is sin still with us when we trust Him as Savior? Yes. Is it still our Master? No. And one day we'll be set free even from its presence. He conquered death because He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave because even though these mortal bodies will one day be laid in a grave, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. His resurrection was the proof that the way of life was open. Why do I even have any hope in Christ? You know why? I sit and I think about this. And listen, I don't, I don't think it's a wrong thing. Sometimes to say, oh man, is this the right road? Some of you are going to say, oh pastor, oh, you should never think that way. Well, I'm sorry I do. And I'm afraid some other people may think that way at times too and say, is this really the truth? Is this really right? And the answer always comes back. Absolutely. Why? Because of one thing. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. You say, do you really believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely. He rose from the dead and he was testified to by hundreds of people who saw him. And the reality of a resurrected life has come into my life and into many of yours. And we know he's alive. And it's because of his resurrection that we too shall live. And then tells us that through the message of the cross... One can and must be saved. Rescued from the penalty of death. It's a present experience. It's ours right now. And it's embraced by faith. Would you look down there at verse 21 again? It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You mean there's no work that I have to do? No. No, because the work has already been done. Do you remember? The fire has already burned. All you do is you step in to the realm where the judgment has already fallen. And you do that by faith. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe he was buried and I believe he rose again from the dead. And I am trusting him. Not a religion not a philosophy, not a straw hope, but a reality of what Jesus Christ did. And that is what 
has become the demonstration of God's power and his wisdom. Verse 24. (coughs) But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, isn't that great? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How do you capture all that is wrapped up in that sacrifice of Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, I can't even begin to touch the realities of what has happened at the cross of Calvary. But you know, people have written songs to try to capture it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. On a hill, far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me some day to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness. A rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. (coughs) Pardon. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. The cross is the power of God to salvation. If you're going to come to God, you have to come through the cross. There's no other way. Will you come to Him today? Here's what I can tell you. You can come just as you are with all of your sin, with all of your baggage, with all of your weakness, with all of your failure, and you bow at the cross, and you reach out in faith and trust Christ as your Savior. Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me. I accept Him as my Savior and Him alone for my hope of eternal life. And you will not leave the cross the same way. You will be different. I ask you to come. But I'm going to ask if you have questions, if you say, I need help 
I really don't understand fully all that you've said today about the cross, but I believe there is truth in that. And I want to know more about Christ. Both Pastor Steve and Pastor Luke are going to be down here. I won't infect you. And they will be delighted to help you find the way to the cross because the way to the cross leads home.